This could actually be the thing that fixes a lot of societal problems. And it just felt to me like I had to work on it. I don't see any more pressing problem than fixing the money uh, in the world that, you know, that could actually make a significant impact on a large number of people. Hello there from El Salvador. How are you all doing? It's pretty late here. Sunday evening, been out filming for the last few days. Now, as some of you know, or some of you have been following me on Twitter, I'm out here making a film about what's happening in the country with Bitcoin becoming legal tender in a few days. I've been speaking to all types of people both sides of the fence, those who are pro-Bitcoin and those who are against the Bitcoin law. And this will all be summed up in the film that I'm making, which I cannot wait to get out to you. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Jan Pritzker, where we discuss Bitcoin mass adoption. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors, and today we kick off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And with Ledger, I have been a customer since early 2017, and I'm still using that same Nano S that I bought back then. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software as that interfaces with your device. And if you are an Android phone user, then you can also connect that to your Nano S to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm still not selling. I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini because I'm a hodler. And we're in a bull market, but I am using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I'm also using their DCA option with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know, what? I've not seen a better interface for buying Bitcoin. Now with their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And next up, we have my new sponsor, the very awesome Compass Mining. But they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass, and now I am mining Bitcoin again. And you know what? I've been mining with Compass for 19 days. I've already mined 0.065517 Bitcoin, which itself is worth just over $3,000, about $3,380 at this very moment. It is so good back to be mining. And do you know what? I really just like these guys. Now, Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. And it was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin because working with Compass is so easy. I just picked the machines I wanted, chose my hosting facility, and they did all the work for me. Now, if you want to find out more, if you're interested in getting into mining, then please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people living in the US who are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% in Bitcoin back on every card purchase, and they have no annual fee. Now, it is the smartest way to stack sats because you get Bitcoin rewards on every purchase, but not just that 1.5% back, no. In your first three months of card ownership, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin. And you know what else? You earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. If you want to find out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, so onto the show, and I finally got Jan Pritzker onto the show. We have been trying to make this happen for a while now. 
Now, Jan is the author of Inventing Bitcoin, and he is the co-founder of Swan Bitcoin. Now, Swan are building a pretty cool company. And the thing I like most of them is the way they push the ethos of Bitcoin by educating people on things like the importance of holding your private keys. So I wanted to get Jan on the show looking at onboarding Bitcoiners. And with El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender tomorrow, we have a potential few new million Bitcoiners joining us. Now, this show was recorded about a week ago, and there's been some interesting things happening in El Salvador. I've seen some people pro-Bitcoin, but I've also seen some people anti-Bitcoin, especially since Bukele uh, had the Supreme Court announcement that he can run for a second term. I've been trying to speak to people about this. I will cover it in my film. Don't worry about that. Now, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to get in touch, you can jump into our Telegram group, or you can drop me an email at hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, onto the show. Let's listen to what Jan has to say. Jan, how are you, brother? Hey, good, Peter. How's it going? Good, man. Finally, we do this. Indeed. Finally. Finally. Okay, <laughs> listen, lots to talk about. It's been a weird, weird year, man. How's it been for you? It has been very strange. Uh, it's been a year of adaptation, I would say, um, but also a year of building and a lot of fun. So it's, it's, been, it's been interesting. Are you one of these people like me who now actually prefers bear markets? <laughs> I actually do. I really do. I mean, like every day I wake up, I'm like praying that the price is going sideways so I can get something done, you know? Because uh, yeah. otherwise it's just, come on. It's too yeah, much noise. Too much noise. My, um, my Twitter feed at the moment is like an NFT gallery. Like all I'm oh, seeing, yeah. NFT, NFT, NFT is crazy. I, I don't really it's understand bad. it either. It's bad. I mean, I've been really working on my blocking filters and my mute words because otherwise just the, the Twitter feed becomes unusable. And I actually want to learn things and have interesting content. And it's just, it's either COVID or NFTs. It's like <laughs> this whole thing is just taken over. Yeah, well, I'm deep in the COVID stuff, some of that, but the NFT stuff. I, I, I wanted to block the term NFT, but the problem is, is there's there's the odd little thing like I'm interested in. I had a long conversation with uh, Samson a few days ago about like utility within NFTs because I think on Liquid they're building this ability to do uh, cinema tickets, and I quite like mm-hmm. the idea of having a, a market for um, concert tickets, which cuts out the middleman because of the you know, steep. Uh, fees you pay with the with the resale uh, uh, vendors. Yeah. So, so there is certain stuff I'm interested in, but I'm thinking I've got to block the NFT stuff, dude. It's too much. <laughs> I mean, I think there's uh, the idea that digital goods can be sold is not new, and it's been around for a long time. And I think there's definitely a lot of interesting innovation to be done there. Um, you know, but like we've had in-game digital items, right? We've had Linden dollars, like those people who are old enough to remember Second Life. Like mm-hmm. that stuff existed for a long time. Um, World of Warcraft, whatever, people sell game items all the time. And so it's just being taken to a new level. Um, and it's, you know, some marketing hype is being attached to it. Uh, but what really drives me crazy is the people paying, you know, like 100K for a rock. That's like, it's just, Dude. It's just like capital destruction. It's like, why? <laughs> Dude, 2.3 million for a rock. <laughs> 2.3. I've, I've stopped keeping track. I mean, I'm assuming it's in the millions now, but this is, yeah. What I saw, I saw Justin Sun. I don't know if it's a troll or not. I saw Justin Sun this morning paid ten million dollars for a crypto punk. Oh, good lord! I mean, this is yeah. just this is easy money, right? Easy, easy come, easy go. Like the guy's got money coming out of every hole, so he's going to spend it on whatever he wants. And if that's you know pumping the price of of crypto punks or rocks or whatever it is they come up with next, that's what's going to be. 
Well, dude, we, we can focus on Bitcoin. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, <laughs> we also get my lovely backdrop today in my uh, Sheraton Hotel here in, uh, El, in El Salvador. It doesn't screw my OPSEC because by the time this is out, I'll be gone. But I have a lovely, <laughs> a lovely brown curtain here. Brown and gray curtain. I like it. It's making me and I've got my right. bare bones guest room that I've never finished uh, decorating because I've just been too busy. So you get to stare at a blank wall. Between us, we've got the most miserable set of colors for this interview. <laughs> we really do. Gray, gray, brown, black. I'll have to get to Danny to put some color in. But anyway, listen, look, yeah. lots to talk about. Uh, this is well overdue, man. Uh, when did I last see you? Don't, don't Please don't tell me it was like uh, Vegas or something. I, I think we were like in Miami um, very oh, briefly. Yeah, of course. But uh, yeah. yeah, we didn't really hang out very much. Yes, but it was crazy out there, man. It was just, Dude. yeah. Wow. Are you going to go next year? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, if I can make it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, uh, the conference was interesting. There was definitely like the whole kind of uh, shitcoinery going on and a little bit of the corporate interests creeping in. It's like mm-hmm. burning, it really reminded me of Burning Man where people kept saying like last year was the last good year. It was kind of like this ongoing meme about Burning Man becoming commercialized. And it's it feels the same thing with uh, <laughs> with like, you know, this conference. Because in 2019, it felt very grassroots and it felt like, you know, Bitcoiners just hanging out and doing Bitcoin things. Uh, and now you have like you know Playboy sponsoring you know like a booth, and it's it's very different. <laughs> well, listen, look, if we hyper Bitcoinize, it is going to become commercialized. That's we have to accept. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. It's just this is like part of the mainstreaming of Bitcoin, which is fine. Like this is just it, it has to happen. Right. Well, listen, a good place to start, a very interesting place to start. We should go back into your background. Um, uh, I know Ben. I spoke to Ben about this. He said it's worth digging into. Do you want to give people a bit of your background pre-Bitcoin, you know, about your family and about leaving uh, the Soviet Union? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, my I came here uh, to the United States when I was seven uh, with my family, and so we came from the Soviet Union. Uh, I was born in Ukraine, and uh, Ukraine was basically a Soviet country. So I don't speak Ukrainian, for example. I speak Russian. Um, you know, Russia was the Soviet Empire was basically just like taking over all these little states. And, uh, you know, it was a socialist state. Everything was controlled. You had full currency control. The currency was constantly devalued. Um, you know, prices were basically fixed. Like, you know, you, you had a salary. There was a standard salary for a teacher, standard salary for an engineer. Um, you know, your apartment was basically government provided, but you had to be on a wait list, right? So we waited for, I don't know, like several years to get an apartment. Uh, my parents actually got a divorce on paper so that they could be on two different waiting lists to get like an apartment, right? Because <laughs> otherwise you're yeah, this is, this is the kind of stuff. So like this is the kind of stuff that happens in an economy where like everything is completely artificially controlled. As people, you know, there's very deep black markets, right? So everything was done uh black market. So for example, like jeans, if you wanted like a pair of jeans from America, uh that would cost you the same as you know like and essentially like the the apartment would cost you. It'd just be extremely expensive because the stuff was almost impossible to get. But on the other hand, like other prices of things were super depressed, right? Like an apartment didn't cost you that much. Uh, you know, your bread didn't cost you that much, but you had to stand in line for it. Uh, and then like you couldn't get random, you know, goods. You could just essentially whatever they were selling that day, you would buy, right? People would just buy whatever was available and then they would barter it for stuff that they actually needed. So everybody was stockpiling different things and basically developing this kind of black market economy. And so, uh, you know, this is all stuff I know kind of retroactively after talking to my parents and researching it. Um, obviously, as a kid, I, I had a pretty normal childhood. You know, from my perspective, I was running around outside and you know playing with knives and stuff that the kids do over there. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> seriously, five-year-olds are throwing knives like this is a thing. Typical Russian um, stuff. But 
Yeah, typical, you know, just your regular Russian childhood. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but like when we came over here, I, you know, I we grew up, you know, I, my dad uh, hustled and, you know, became a computer programmer and stuff like that. But but we grew up relatively poor here and I didn't really like ever ask why. I just kind of assumed, you know, well, all, all immigrants come to America with nothing, right? This is like the classical immigrant story. But when I got into Bitcoin, um, I, I started kind of understanding this idea that there's capital controls in the world. There's places where you can't uh, take your money out of the country, right? Uh, pretty much almost everywhere, there's some kind of capital controls. Even in America, I mean, if you're transporting $10,000 of cash, they want to know about it. Dude, uh, they take it off they... people. Yeah. <laughs> they would take I remember, I remember. I remember a story, was it last year or two years ago, about some guy who was on a plane, and I think he had like $70,000, and they took it off him, and he never got it back. Mm. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. Trying well, to that's, that. that's, we have this whole like civil asset forfeiture problem here where basically they just steal your shit without any due process. <laughs> like, good luck getting it back. Mm. Um, but that's, and that's like in the land of the free, right? Like, this is, this is about as free as it gets. And then imagine that in most of the world, it's not nearly as, as good, right? Mm-hmm. In most of the world, uh, you know, they have full control over your situation. So when we left, um, we were able to keep $100 per person. We, the government exchanged $100 worth of rubles. So that's what we left with. Otherwise, you know that that currency was garbage and nobody wanted it. So um, that when I started getting into Bitcoin, I was like, "Wait a minute! This is the thing that solves that problem. It solves the ability for people to like take their wealth that they accumulated, even though we weren't by any stretch of the imagination wealthy, but we had something. Mm. Um, we couldn't take it with us, right? So that that's a form of lock-in. That's a form of jurisdictional." Uh, you know, nation-state lock-in. You can't leave even if you wanted to because you just, you know, we'd, you'd have to start over. And a lot of people don't leave for that reason, right? They can't, they can't afford to start over. You know, later in life, you know, learn new skills, learn new language, try to make all their money back. It's impossible. So, um, was it hard for your parents to leave? Uh, I mean, yes, but at the same time, I think it, they just became so fed up with the system and and the way that it was. And I think you know, we we left right after Chernobyl. So Chernobyl happened in '86. Uh, 89 we left and I think that was one of the tipping points around like realizing people kind of realizing how messed up the government was lying about everything and you know like not not telling people what's going on and um, you know cry, like rampant bribery and crime everything's corrupted right the, the entire government is corrupt because there's no free market and so anything you need you need to get through some type of back channel um, and that creates these massive incentives for bribery and, and corruption and everything else and you know people just didn't want to live in a society like that. Well, I guess in that scenario, the the, the corruption is the free market. <laughs> exactly right. So the black market is the free market, and you know, eventually the black market ended up essentially eclipsing the white market. The Soviet Union fell, and then it all became like all the people who had been sort of controlling the black market and the the government officials. They became the new oligarchs and the new, uh, you know, the new ruling class of this quote unquote capitalist system. But really, it was just a transition of the people who had accumulated all the shit during the. You know the chaos, uh, and and had the and had the connections to do that, and that those are the people who became you know wealthy from the sort of the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, so, you know, not a good system. <laughs> no. Do, do your parents talk a lot about the past, what it was like for them? Um, not really so much. I mean, like I think now they're kind of like concerned that um, that America's headed down a similar path where there's you know talk of socialism and a lot of. Uh, left-leaning policies that really scare them a lot uh, because they've sort of seen it before and the control of the media and control of narratives and all this kind of stuff. 
I mean, in the Soviet Union, it was just blatant. It wasn't like anybody was hiding it. There was, you know, like two TV channels. They were all state controlled. You know, you didn't have any information coming in or out. Um, it, it's different now because we have the internet and we have sort of freedom of information. But at the same time, you know, they're concerned like, oh, there's all this narrative control now and the media and, you know, even in social media, like the gatekeepers become these, you know, whatever, uh, large internet companies. So that's definitely concerning for them. They they have, they don't really talk about the past as much, but when we've spoken about it, I, I think it's um, that's one of the reasons that they left is they didn't like that sort of level of control that the government had. Yeah, I mean, it obviously impacted you a lot. Um, you've obviously talked to your parents a lot about it, uh, what they went through living in the Soviet Union, and, and I think it's kind of interesting to hear that they have concerns now. What's happening in the U.S.? Uh, I'm really my headspace at the moment is trying to understand how people organize, how governance works, the different governance structures, whether uh, anarcho-capitalist ideas can work, etc. I'm really in that space because one of the things I keep mm -hmm. thinking about is how do we always end up with government? How do we end up with authoritarian states? And how do we move forward? Rather than just being against it, it's trying to understand how humans yeah. organize themselves. And I guess with what happened in the Soviet Union, that was kind of hard socialism, ideologically built centrally from within the government, believing that was the best form of government governance. Whereas I look at the US now, and it seems like more of a slip into socialism. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's more populism-driven, like it's people who want it. But that's, I mean, I guess in a way, right, the Soviet Revolution was also, you know, people who are fed up with sort of like the king and the, and the ruling class and, and feeling like they didn't have any power. And that's sort of, I think what happens over time is that people at the bottom are like, you know, why do we get the shit end of the stick? We, we want power too. And then there's a revolution, right? And it could be a hard revolution, or it could be like, you know, like you're saying, like sort of a slip where essentially right now what's happening is we're voting in the people who will sort of like fix, quote unquote, fix the problems of the of the poor, you know, the student debt, the crisis and all this other stuff are, are like essentially the masses sort of like voting for this because we have a democracy and that's that's where it's going. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I tend to think about with that, I mean, even right now, look, I'm in El Salvador, I'm making a film and I'm looking at what happened during the Civil War and you look at what happened to people in the villages who were essentially massacred. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I'm also, I've been out to various other countries uh, to see what happens and to, to see this kind of constant back and forth between uh, uh, socialist governments and, and more kind of uh, freedom-loving governments. Um, and I, some of the things I, I tend to try and think about is like, I don't, it's like some of the ideas that are coming out of the US now. Do I believe these people are Marxists and they've studied different forms of Marxism? Or are these people who are just trying to have a more equitable society, but they don't understand the secondary effects of doing that? Yeah, I, I, I'm very much like not a... I, I have a hard time like being sort of uh, ascribing malice to people. I, I always think it's just about incentives, right? And so mm. like if you're in a position of power... And look, a lot of government people go into government because they legitimately want to help folks, right? They're like, how can I best help my community? Then it's like, how can I best help my state? Then they eventually they make it a federal government. But then they, they end up in this machine and this machine is incentivized to self-perpetuate, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, I mean, if you look at, um, there's all, all this um, studies being done on like how much time Congress spends raising money, for example. You know, like they're spending like half of their time just making phone calls for money, right? And so that creates an incentive system where they have to essentially play to those interests. It's not like they're being bribed like they were in the Soviet Union explicitly, but that incentive system exists, right? And so um, it's very, for me, it's hard to like say that anybody's being necessarily malicious or trying to be like a puppet master pulling all this Marxist strings. 
Uh, I really think it's more like people just trying to do something that they think is right, and then their incentives are being, you know, pressured from from all the money that's flowing into the system. And it's now this machine, right? And like once you're in the machine, you just <laughs> got to do your part in the machine. You can't actually change the direction of the thing is going. So I think our best bet, you know, in terms of like having a, a better and free society, is to try to take some of that power away from government. And, and I think Bitcoin is a perfect example of something like that, where we just say, well, it should, I mean, you, you can't print the money anymore. We, we can have the money. This is our money. So you can print all you want of your other stuff, but we don't want any of that. And I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of like the path that we have to go down. Otherwise, I think both socialist and you know, capitalist systems, they have the same fundamental problem, which is that the, the, the thing that's created still needs to grow and self-perpetuate. That government, it doesn't matter what it's sort of like free market or not free market. It's, it's never going to be a free market if there's sort of this giant machine that's trying to self-perpetuate at the same, at the same time. Yeah, well, that's why we continue to go in these cycles. We have cycles mm-hmm. of different, you know, the pull and the push from the left and the right, uh, the, the growth in wealth inequality, which leads to revolution. Um, you can see that over yeah. and over again across the world. You see it a lot in uh, South America. Uh, and I'm really interested in that, but I'm also interested in seeing how, how does Bitcoin break this? I don't, I'm trying not to have that fundamental belief that Bitcoin absolutely definitely fixes everything. Because I think I think <laughs> I think that destroys a little bit of objectivity. Um, but I am sure. trying. I'm yeah, tra- there's more nuance there. <laughs> yeah, I think there's more nuance there. That's where I think Twitter doesn't help because it just becomes binary arguments and uh, you know appealing to the echo chamber rather than going through the nuance of you know okay if Bitcoin does fix certain things how does it fix it how does this work uh, you know one thing on my mind right now is a majority of Bitcoin activity now is in North America majority of the big companies that are being built, majority of the investors, the majority of my listeners, uh, all the activities in America, if we hyper-Bitcoinize and there's a significant proportion of the Bitcoin wealth held in America, how does that, Im- how does that impact? Is that bad? Is it good? Does it not matter? It's really on my mind whether that like there's a different mm. kind of shift in power and a different shift in wealth equality. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I... I I kind of think of it like there's no such thing as equality, right? There's there's always luck of the draw. Mm-hmm. Where are you born? You know, is it in the middle of a desert and an oil field? Like, what what do you have under, at your disposal, right? And we here in America, we have at our disposal a relatively free society. We have strong property rights, and we are attracting Bitcoin activity, right? We also mm-hmm. have a lot of the world's wealth already, um, and we have a lot of the tech innovation, right? So because of all those pieces that are here we are better positioned to take advantage of Bitcoin than most other countries. But that's not to say that we're, we're not the leader in necessarily Bitcoin usage. I mean, I don't know what that number is, but if you look at some of these other countries that people have been surveyed and they have very high proportionality in terms of people having touched Bitcoin or crypto or whatever this, these surveys are, are saying. The point is that we might have it by numbers, by like dollar volume, right? Because we have Michael Saylor who's going to go out and buy a billion dollars. You're probably not going to get like an El Salvadorian buying a billion dollars of, of Bitcoin, but you might have more of them that are actually using it day to day. So, you know, there's some degree of proportionality where the old guard wealth is going to, you know, be able to transition into Bitcoin um, in, in larger size than, say, you know, people who, are, who aren't wealthy to begin with. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is in, in a certain way a great equalizer because it creates the opportunity for people who are in disadvantaged societies to save money. You know, they're no longer essentially like shadow taxed by their money just bleeding out through inflation. So they have the, the first for the first time the ability to save. 
they have for the first time potentially the ability to leave their country, right? Like as I was saying, and that actually puts pressure on the country itself, right? So when we say Bitcoin fixes this, I think of it always in the margins. You know, if like Russia experienced this too, the Soviet Union had this like brain drain, right? Everybody who was smart and had access to capital left, right? Because like, what are you going to do? You know that America is a better, you know, freer society. All the people who understood that left. And so that created this brain drain. And so you're going to have the same thing happen to any country where people sort of embrace Bitcoin and on the margin, those people are able to leave. They create brain drain. They then destabilize that country. They make it less powerful. And then the leaders, you know, fall. And, and, and so the country may change just because of the nature of the changing population. Or it, may, it might get worse, right? Maybe the people who get out are, are well off and the people who are left over are left in this like impoverished hellhole. That could happen too. It's not necessarily a clean exit. Um, well, but I think that you know it gives it gives people some opportunity. That's a good thing. We're also seeing that in the U.S. internally. We're seeing the brain drain from uh, New York and from uh, uh, California. People use it, move into Miami, move into Texas. I think Austin has uh, had a massive yeah. influx of people, and I'm I'm interested to see what impact that has on the uh, political landscape in in both New York and California. If, if these places could. Flip red at some point, and oh, oh, uh, you know, and conversely, could uh, could Texas flip blue? Uh, I, I think <laughs> yeah, these, I mean, are, I these are all. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say. I think what you know, uh, I do think that that the people moving around the country is going to change things a bit. I definitely see Austin as becoming like a new Silicon Valley hub, but maybe now it's self-selected, right? So the thing about California is it was more or less self-selected. Like I, I lived in San Francisco for three years. And everybody you talk to, I mean, there's almost nobody that's actually like is born there, right? It's all self-selected people who come there for a particular reason, whether it be you know the hippie lifestyle or to build tech or whatever it is. It's self-selected, and I think that self-selection creates an interesting community. And I think that's going to happen in Austin. I see it more like freedom-loving people that are also combined with the tech world, which is interesting, and that could create a really interesting um, society there. But we'll have to see. So you've uh, you've dedicated your life to Bitcoin now, right? <laughs> Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. Well, how much of that was an economic decision and how much was that a ethical decision? Um, so I, I had a startup right before I started getting into Bitcoin, which is called Reverb. And um, I, I've, I've been in startups for you know, 20 years. I've done, this is actually my seventh one now. Wow. So I've done a lot of startups. Most of them did relatively poorly, uh, you know, had a few minor exits, but Reverb did really well. And so um, when I was leaving Reverb, it, hadn't, it, it ended up being sold to Etsy, um, but I, I actually left right before that. But I did relatively well with Reverb, and you know I didn't strictly have to work right away. So I, I decided I wanted to work on Bitcoin, not necessarily for monetary reasons. It was more like, um, you know, the reason I even wanted to do Reverb was because I wanted to do something that helped people in mass. And Reverb was bringing music to people. It was a, a marketplace for people to buy and sell musical gear. Which sounds kind of silly, but if you're a musician, like you can, you know, like there's mm-hmm. something really special about getting somebody their first guitar, like a kid or you know their first used guitar that they get into, and that that made me like feel good inside, right? Feel me made me feel good about what I was doing, and when I learned about Bitcoin, I was like, damn, this could like this could prevent the next Soviet Union, right? This could fix, this could prevent the next Venezuela. This could actually be the thing that fixes a lot of societal problems, and it just felt to me like I had to work on it. I mean, if I have the skill set to do something in the space. Um, I don't see any more pressing problem than fixing the money uh, in the world that you know, that could actually make a significant impact on a large number of people. That's really the reason I I got into it. Well, I want to riff on El Salvador with you in a bit because I'm here now and uh, we're uh, six days away from 
uh, Bitcoin become a legal tender, which I think is super interesting in, in loads of different ways. But let's talk a little bit about the book because you, you wrote a book. It's a it's not a it's not a long read. It's a good, nice, easy introduction to people. Why did why did you approach? Uh, why did you decide to write a book? So when I was when I was getting into Bitcoin, which really started around 2016, uh, you know, honestly, when I started like really, really getting into it, and um, you know, reading and writing, and uh, started writing a blog, started watching a lot of videos, listening to pods, and um, at the time, there was really kind of like Andreas's uh, Mastering Bitcoin book, which was really huge and very technical. And like when people would ask me, you know, like uh, how what should I learn? What, how should I learn about uh, Bitcoin? I would always just point them to small videos, things like that. Um, but I ended up uh, going around to high schools. I had a lot of teachers who are friends, and they invited me to high schools to talk to their kids. And I was out there like trying to explain Bitcoin to people. And I started writing down thoughts that ended up being the outline, and you know, turned into the, this book. And I realized from having conversations with people about Bitcoin that. Um, it can get very antagonistic. I'm sure you found this. Like, if somebody's not open to Bitcoin, they could be like, "Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, how come of this?" Right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I, I found that like people need time to digest Bitcoin before you can have a real conversation with them, because otherwise they get triggered. Everything gets triggered because they're like, "This is you know fake money, Ponzi scheme, you know fool's gold, whatever is going to destroy the planet." All of these things start getting triggered, and they can't rationally think about it. But I think if you sit down and read about it. It's a totally different experience because now you have time with your own thoughts to really like process whatever. Um, and so the book was really kind of like the the result of, of giving these talks and wanting to give people something that they could actually process on their own time. And I wanted it to be really, really short because I didn't think it's not reasonable to give Mastering Bitcoin to people. It's, it's too technical. It's too long. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted people to have like an idea of what, the, what Bitcoin is. And actually, I started from a very technical side myself because I was you know a developer. I started explaining the nuts and bolts of how it works, but then I realized that's kind of useless unless I really go back and talk about the why. And so I actually started incorporating a lot of Satoshi's reasonings and getting some of his writing into the book to explain, like, this is where Satoshi was coming from. These are the problems he saw with the money. This is what he was trying to do to fix it and give people an idea that they could actually walk through the process of how Bitcoin might have been invented to to. Um, get a really good understanding for themselves that they could then defend to other people. You know, if somebody asks them, like, why is you know, they're 21 million Bitcoin or, or what is they having? They can actually defend that idea because they understand the nuts and bolts. What, what did you learn yourself by writing it though? Uh, I mean, I learned a ton about Satoshi's motivations because that while writing it, I actually spent a lot of time reading his forum posts. And I have this other book called The Book of Satoshi, mm-hmm. um, which has all his forum posts and various quotes from him and stuff like that. And um, that was probably the most educational part for me is just not not looking at the tech, but looking at Satoshi's um, reasonings for all of this stuff. And um, that's why I actually spend a lot of time, you know, in the book on that, talking about like what he saw, the problem with the currency debasement, the problem with trusting central banks, uh, the problems of identity theft and identity leakage that happens in the financial system and censorship, like all the stuff that he was pointing out. I don't think is obvious to most people. Uh, if you're not like, especially if you're in America and you're kind of, you know, your money basically works, you don't really question things. You know, you you hear about inflation, but it's not really a thing for you. Um, you know, for most people, it's like it's fine. So a lot of these problems that he points out become way more obvious if you are from a society like the Soviet Union or Latin America, where you've seen these problems firsthand. You can really identify with them. Um, but I think that's the thing that I learned the most is is really just kind of his motivations and um, the technical stuff. I understood relatively early on. It was just more the political and economic stuff that I think was more interesting uh, to really 
bring together the idea of why Bitcoin has to exist in the world. Next up, I talk to Yan more about Bitcoin mass adoption. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Okay, let's talk about Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin, and I've been using it over here in El Salvador. They've got a nice little Bitcoin ATM here in Zonte. Do you know what? I didn't have some dollars on me, so I went straight to the machine and I used it to withdraw some dollars, which is super cool, made it super easy for me. Now, as you know, I love UX. Good UX, I think, is always a great driver of adoption and use. And with the Exodus guys, they absolutely killed it. When I had a play with the app, I was like, you know what? You can sponsor the show. And that's why I'm happy to recommend it to you and my friends and family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known as Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search your Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, and phishing attacks, there are way too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost and stolen. And you know what? This is really something you want to be on top on. And with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin. But you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you can distribute those wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes errors and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for about a year and I'm going to be sticking with them. So if you've got any questions, you can drop me a DM on Twitter or hit me up on my email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly, this week we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And you know what? The football season started. Not only have we had two great results for England in this last week, but Liverpool got off to a pretty good start to the season. The only downer is Tottenham. Three wins out of three for them. Sad times, right? Sad times. Actually, sadder times for you Gooners out there. It's been a tough start for the Arsenal. Hope you're holding up well. Now, look, you don't just have to take a bet out on the football. They cover so many other things. Sports bets, tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please do head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. So can we dig into that Satoshi stuff? Because I, I find that super interesting because one of the things I've noticed about Bitcoin is it uh, it's leading to, uh, to a certain consistency of thought or groupthink regarding topics outside of Bitcoin. So there are a number of Bitcoiners who believe in you know, bringing down the state. Uh, there's a number of Bitcoiners who've become libertarians, uh, anarcho-capitalists. Uh, but at the same time, there's many libertarians I've met who aren't Bitcoiners as well. So Satoshi talked a lot about central banks and the problems with central banks. Did he talk about governance as well? I don't remember him saying anything specifically about governance other than, you know, talking about this kind of like, there's this uh, one CPU, one vote quote from from him, mm-hmm. which is a lot of times misinterpreted by people to indicate that Bitcoin is a type of democracy. Um, and it's actually not because if, if, this is the other thing about Satoshi is that he also, you know, he made mistakes. He, he had bugs in his code. Like he's not an infallible person and nothing that he said is completely infallible. It's more like guidelines to his, you know, what he was thinking. Uh, but one thing that people, I think, really have a struggle with when they look at Bitcoin and they talk about, uh, they ask about governance, they think about it like voting. You know, uh, couldn't people just change the rules of Bitcoin if you know enough people voted on it, right? Uh, because that's what they're used to. That the, especially in dem- democratic societies, we're used to this idea like if enough people want something, it, the rules are changed. 
But in Bitcoin, it's really much more anar- anarchic, right? It's that each node determines for itself what is acceptable. So if you're a very economically significant node and you don't want to take payments of this new rule system, well, then those coins are invalid, right? Like you can't pay that merchant or whoever that is with those coins. They, they don't want it. So um, each, each node decides for themselves. And I think that creates a very different governance system than people are used to. And the, uh, the way to think about it, you know, when, when, for example, the block size wars happened in 2017, I actually spent some time writing about that. At that time, I had a blog and I was writing about my perspective sort of as a developer as, as to what was going to happen. And I predicted that the fork was going to fail and all of that. But it took me a long time to come to that because I, there's so much fud and disinformation and like people saying that, you know, if, if enough people want this, it'll just happen. And then I just realized, like, no, it's it's actually not how it works. It, each node decides, and so it, it doesn't matter what these, like, you know, the majority of companies in Bitcoin or the majority of miners want. Their coins are not going to be accepted by these like core group of people that that care about Bitcoin, and you know, the, the rules can't be changed. So I think there's there's something to be learned there. I don't know if it translates to society. This is with a thing where where Bitcoiners will take Bitcoin's governance model of you know. Uh, total anarchy, total self-sovereignty, and see and say, okay, well, this will just translate to society. Society can work like this. I think it's a big question, right? We don't know. Mm, um, mm. We don't know how this kind of thing scales to people, right? Because the reality is, like, if my government decides to enact some rule and they have the police force and they have the whatever, they can come and enact it, right? And it's very difficult to defend against that. You can't just say, no, no, thank you, I'm going to opt out. Uh, unless you can actually leave, right? This is where, again, it comes back to Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're like literally jailed or, or gunned to your head, I mean, what are you going to do? So, so do you think one of the most important things that people learn about or learn about Bitcoin is learning about nodes themselves and running a node? Do you think that becomes like a core tenant? I think so. Uh, I also think that Bitcoiners, you know, they spend a lot of time, you know, talking about everybody should run a node, but it's also very, very difficult still. Um, mm-hmm. And I say this, you know, I think we're getting there. Uh, I mean, products like Umbral have gotten really it's slick, but still, I mean, the average person cannot run a node right now. That's just the reality. And I know I'm going to get so much flack from from Bitcoiners right now for this, but I really believe in user experience. And there's one part which is like advocacy, right? And we advocate for running nodes and we try to explain it to people. But there's the other part of the user experience has to be really good, right? Like when you get your Comcast modem or whatever your your cable provider is and you plug it in and it works, right? Or you get your iPhone and you plug it in and it works. We're not there with, with uh, Bitcoin nodes yet. So expecting that everybody's going to run one when we're not there is just kind of unrealistic. Now, it's, it is important for the people who are actually in Bitcoin and are Bitcoin educators and are Bitcoin um, you know, evangelists, if you will, to do that so they understand what they're talking about. But I don't think... You know, I'm not expecting my mom to run a node right now, um, and you know, some some Bitcoiners will say that this is like a really bad uh, piece of advice. But I I think that people should learn and level up into that first. Um, and we're just not there yet with the user experience. It's kind of like running Linux in the '90s. It was just it's it was only for nerds. Yeah, but listen, <laughs> but, I, but now everybody has it on their phone. Yeah, I mean, I've been through that uh, experience of explaining nodes are too difficult. And, and, and sometimes even setting up the node itself is fine, but that kind of like getting your head around understanding what your node does, and it is still complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's still a little bit in the not your keys, not your Bitcoin thing. It made me think of that. I was just going to read you. I got an email this morning saying, um, mm-hmm. I'm writing because I still have my Bitcoin on the Coinbase exchange and I'm terrified to move it. 
uh, are my fears justified? So I just told him, like, explained, you need to get a, a, a you know, first point is to get a hardware wallet. Uh, yeah. And he said, he replied, like I said, I'm terrified to move it and lose it. Uh, so but I think... That's a real fear. Yeah. It's a real I mean, fear. It's real, it's, and we need yeah. to accept these fears that, that people have. Not everybody's technical. Uh, not everybody is... Um, uh, used to considering a new form of money. I mean, someone like my dad spent 70 years using uh, ca cash and, and uh, occasionally his credit card, he still prefers cash. Trying to explain to him this new form of digital money where you hold it on a hardware wallet, you have to back up your private keys in case you lose it. Like, it's a huge leap for, yeah. for many, <laughs> many people. Uh, even here, out in else. Out in El Salvador, when people ask him, oh, which, which wallet should I use? Well, you could use Blue Wallet, but that is a uh, custodial. You could use, you know, Wallet XYZ, whichever it is. You've got to, there's a, there's a massive leap for people. Yeah. I think that we're still, again, it's a user experience thing. I think mm -hmm. we need to be in a world where, you know, we have like magical multi sig setup devices where you, you just buy, you know, three things and they just magically communicate to each other and automatically set up and, they distribute, you know, uh, all your secrets and are they're encrypted and backed up, and everything is is done for you. You know, if it's not done for you, uh, there's this expectation that people are just going to like figure this out. But the reality is that most people can't even secure, like they, they don't even know how to do a good password, right? Uh, most people have terrible passwords in their email, and you know their their financial uh, security is at risk at all times. All you know, they they just don't know it, and so many people get hacked or you know their stuff is stolen, and even from traditional accounts. So we're asking a lot of them right now, and I think we need to figure out ways to ask less of them while still, you know, again, it's, I, I really think the Linux analogy is very apt because I ran Linux back in the day, like in the 90s, when it was, it was ridiculous. Like you had to like write code, compile your own code. Like everything was just really, really tough and, and, and crazy. And people would write articles like Linux will, you know, it will never go anywhere. Microsoft has already won, all this kind of stuff. But what they didn't understand is that Linux wasn't going to be the thing that people would use. It was just the engine. It became Android. It became the thing that powers the entire web, right? Like it became the blood that runs through all of our technology. Um, but people don't have to interact with it directly, right? They, they use their Android device. They're not thinking that they, they're setting up Linux or whatever, but it is an offshoot of that. So I think that Bitcoin ends up there. I think nodes end up being, you know, you plug in, like I always think of it like a light bulb. You have a light bulb node, you'd screw it in. It lights up, it connects to Wi-Fi, it does all the things. You don't worry about it, right? Um, we're just not there yet. And once once that moment comes, then we're going to get a lot more people running nodes. Maybe it becomes embedded in their, um, you know, the boxes that they get from their cable provider and that kind of thing. I mean, we we have to figure out where that um, where that intersection happens, but it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. All right, so I want to talk to you about El Salvador because I'm here, um, and the reason I want to talk about it is, you know, one of the missions of uh, Swan Bitcoin is to onboard the next 10 million people. Well, in six days, five days, 6.4 million people are going to be onboarded into Bitcoin in El Salvador. Very cool. Uh, very, very cool. They're going to receive uh, $30 of uh, Bitcoin each. Um, super interesting. But is there actually any any information about how many people signed up for that? I see. I don't know that, and I don't know if it applies to children as well. So, if you can, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if you've got three children, do you get thirty dollars each? Those details, are, I'm, I'm not fully aware of. But essentially, a population of six million. So maybe let's even be conservative, mm -hmm. like two to three million. Um, I'm just wondering how this all plays out. I'm wondering if the timing's right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to step back at, from the excitement of a country making Bitcoin legal tender, which is super interesting. But like, think through all the scenarios. 
does this work? Doesn't this work? What are what are the risks? What are the trade-offs? I was um, out for dinner with a couple of Bitcoiners last night, and we were just like running through scenarios. Um, so trying to look, look at the most positive scenario and the most negative scenario. And the most negative scenario is if like this doesn't work out particularly well. Say people get wrecked, or <clears throat> you know, we go into a bear market and. Uh, it turns out to have been something that people perceive on the short term to be a poor decision. It becomes probably an attack vector for the political opposition. And when Bukele's successor is up for election in two to three years, um, it could be one of the key points they uh, uh, battle against. Mm -hmm. And then if a different uh, government comes into power, they might undo the legislation. So that's like... That's the worst case scenario that it, it gets undone in three years. The best case scenario is that this is super successful, loads of investments in the country, lots of Bitcoin ends up in the country in the hands of uh, Salvadorans, that they uh, end up raising up the net wealth of the country and the net wealth of people, and uh, uh, and uh, El Salvador's GDP, GDP raises up. So there's like all these different scenarios I'm, I'm trying to think through. I'm, I'm wondering mm -hmm. like how much time you've spent thinking about it. Um, a little bit. I think you know what. What I think about when when I hear about this El Salvador, it's like there's a lot of hype around it, and it really reminds me of like the 2013 hype around accepting Bitcoin as payments. There were so many companies that were like, "We're going to accept Bitcoin as payments. Bitcoin's next, you know, the the greatest thing." And then what happened? The bear market hit, and everybody was basically first of all, nobody wanted to pay in Bitcoin because people didn't want to. It wasn't widely distributed enough, and people didn't want to part with it, so it didn't really make sense as a payment method. So you had all these companies hyping up getting paid in Bitcoin, and then it basically was like a, a dud, and a lot of them actually canceled their programs. So I, I kind of see it the same way with states, and I really actually am a little bit pessimistic about what's going to happen in El Salvador. I think, again, I'm not on the ground there, so I don't want to speak to the situation because I haven't seen it. But um, you know, I my friends and my SWAN team, they've gone down to El Zonte and, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, they say that Bitcoin is relatively well, you know, accepted there. Uh, but still, like uh, in the country at, at large, a lot of people going around their daily business and they're already on the dollar. So it's like not a big they're not actually that incentivized, I think, to go to Bitcoin. Uh, whereas, you know, if they were like Venezuela or some other uh, you know, country that really had a problem with the currency, maybe there's more of that incentive. But um, to me, it might be a little bit of a hype cycle where people say, yeah, it's legal tender, great, you know, and some percentage of, of shops start accepting it, some percentage of users start using it. Um, but then the hype dies down and it's like, well, nothing really changed. And maybe it takes another cycle for uh, some more countries to kind of wise up to it, some more actual problems to happen to really kick people's like, um, you know, necessity into gear. And then it becomes more adapted. You know, like I, we're seeing now the, same thing with corporations. Everybody's like, we need to buy Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And there was like a couple big hype cycle, you know, a couple dozen companies bought some Bitcoin, a couple hundred, you know, or thousands uh, smaller companies are buying Bitcoin. But it's a hype cycle and it's going to diminish and it's going to fizzle out and then there will be another one. So I, I think of it more that way. I I will be very pleasantly surprised if all of a sudden, you know, um, El Salvador becomes like the Bitcoin capital of the world. That would be awesome. But I'm not expecting it personally. I just think there's the... I've always said that Bitcoin is a cultural and generational shift, and just because the price goes up way faster than anybody expected, maybe um, doesn't change the fact that people need time to adjust to this new norm. And I think that just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, it could be a bit of an anticlimax um, in terms of it the rollout. Could be. <laughs> yeah, people just everyone has the wallet, but they continue accepting the dollar. I and mean, there are there are complexities around. Except in Bitcoin, um, the main one I think most people have to get used to is volatility. Did, how much have you touched on volatility in your writings? 
Um, I don't really talk about it too much because I think, again, I always think about Bitcoin as a very cyclical, very long-term thing. And I think about, like when I'm talking to my friends or anybody who's asking me about Bitcoin, I say, we're here, we're upgrading our money. We're looking at this as a multi-generational um, journey. And if the majority of the Bitcoin that you you know save up is going to your children, that would be fine. That would probably be the thing that you're doing here because you're you're building you know, a legacy, right? You're not really mm-hmm. necessarily trying to make a quick buck. And I think volatility over time has to go down just because the market will get large enough where it's, it would be difficult to move for anybody to move it um, with small, you know, with, with small amounts of, of volume. So um, I think we're going to get there again. I don't know how, how long it takes. Maybe it takes another five, 10 years, 20 years. I don't know. Uh, but the other thing is volatility is always extremely relative. So in the United States, maybe it's volatile, but not in Venezuela mm. or Argentina or other places that have double digit inflation. It's not volatile. It's actually better than the alternative. So I don't think we can talk about it uniformly. I think we have to talk about it very locally and very specific to people's situation. And if their local currency is worse than Bitcoin and volatility and its purchasing power loss, they're going to choose Bitcoin over time. It's just a matter of education and and, um, improving user experience. Well, I mean, here in El Salvador, they are dollarized. So uh, it is relatively volatile. I think what my hope for here is, Jan, is that this just becomes a accelerant for people in this country to have an incentive to learn about Bitcoin. And perhaps, totally. I, yeah, I don't I, see it as a situation where everyone's going to be going around spending Bitcoin with each other. So maybe the Bitcoin is coming into Zonte will be <laughs> leaving some sets, sets behind, which I like doing, but maybe it's just an accelerant for people to learn about Bitcoin here. Yeah, and honestly, if they learn about Bitcoin enough, they're going to realize they don't want to spend it, right? Yeah. Like, if you actually... <laughs> If you figure out where you are in the Bitcoin cycle and like you're the first country literally with Bitcoin tender laws and you realize, wait a minute, there's going to be others, then why would I ever, why spend this unless that's my only option? And like you're saying, they're already dollarized. I don't know how what other problems there are with the dollarization. I, for me, the main problem with dollarization is that the United States gets to you know play call the rules, right? They control the entire dollar economy of the world and they can just shut down your country and say, we don't like you anymore. We don't like your leadership, sanctions, whatever. Um, we don't want to clear your wires. I mean, they can do that kind of stuff. And they can also print a whole lot of dollars, right? So um, it's not great from that perspective. But as far as the alternative, like having their own currency with double or triple digit you know, inflation, like they probably would have if they don't have the dollar, the dollar is actually a pretty good choice. So I, I, I think it might be a nothing burger where people end up sort of keeping using, keep using the dollar, learn about Bitcoin. The, the hype is good. The marketing is great. Mm-hmm. Education is wonderful. And it just it'll take a cycle for them to kind of kick it into gear. So it sounds like to me that you're, you're firmly in this camp that we're still very, very early in Bitcoin, and and one of the things that <laughs> I'm we should... a permanent hyper bear on, <laughs> on how far in the cycle we are. <laughs> so it sounds to me like the one of the most important things to educate people is that we are early. Um, you know, we are. Uh, changing the money, therefore, anything that you are investing in this is something you should be considering holding for multi-year, perhaps decade or decades. I think so. Yeah, I, I definitely am always talking about inheritance, and I think that's another kind of area that's difficult, you know, and hasn't hasn't been fully solved. And I know there's like uh, companies that are focusing on on setting up multi-sig for inheritance purposes and all of that. But again, it has to be really, really easy, and it has to be something that people don't worry about. Right now, it's really only accessible by wealthy folks. You know, with significant amount of stake, and like they they're going to invest some time in, in setting up all this stuff, but it needs to be a no brainer. And then it's like, okay, well, I I I have a Bitcoin savings account, and I'm not worried it's going to go to my kids when I die. It's going to be great. Um, you know, it, it'll be multi sig and magic will happen. And um, we need to be there for this to be 
you know, really more of a, a cultural thing. But I do see that a lot of our customers, you know, at Swan, we actually have probably like half of our customers are coming. They're older, um, 50 years and up. A lot of the volume is coming from those folks. And they're all asking about it. Like, you know, I'm going to leave Bitcoin to my kids. Uh, I'm looking at this as a savings account. I'm looking at this for for the long term. They're not looking to like get in and get out. This is not what somebody in that age group thinks about. They think about their legacy. So um, it's it's really interesting to see that because it is happening. And it's it's a really exciting change in um, how people think about Bitcoin. It's not 2017 retail mania anymore. Well, it's super bullish. I mean, we keep having Bitcoins being taken out of the system, put in long-term storage for, for the future. Um, I think it's ultra bullish uh, within the current market. So tell me about, a little bit more about Swan. Um, apart from the fact that you guys seem to be recruiting all the best content creators in the space, <laughs> like, what, what, is the Swan, what, t- what is the Swan mission? So, I mean, the SWAN mission was and remains to be the best on-ramp for Bitcoiners, to bring in Bitcoiners. And specifically, we use the word Bitcoiners as opposed to, you know, just like customers or whatever. We want to make Bitcoiners. So not just people who buy Bitcoin and see a number that's going up, but people who care about Bitcoin, people who are going to explain it to their friends, people who are going to run nodes, who are going to set up wallets, who are going to actually do all that stuff. So our, our mission has always been to align ourselves with the core tenets of Bitcoin, now, yes, we're a KYC service. I mean, I, there's going to be tons of Bitcoiners who are going to like come down and say, you know, you should only ever buy Bitcoin in like peer-to-peer markets, whatever. But the reality is, if you want to onboard the next 10 million, that's not going to happen that way. You need to have an easy way for people to onboard. And I'm not worried that I got KYC for my Bitcoin. I'm going to be leaving KYC-free Bitcoin to my kids, and <laughs> you know, everything's going to be fine. Um, we have coin joins. We have all this other stuff. We have all this privacy technology, and we're not afraid to talk about it either. We we you know we write about this stuff. We believe um, about you know that Bitcoin is a multi generational change and that it, that the user experience is being improved and so we're just trying to get people their first taste you know and if that first taste means literally buying a number and that number's on their dashboard that's great because that's an incentive for them to learn more and then that number then becomes a withdrawal in their wallet because then we're encouraging automatic withdrawals right and then it becomes uh, running your node because now we're having drip campaigns over email we're explaining to people. Um, what what to do with their Bitcoin? What are the next steps? What is the you know next thing that they can read about to get more educated? So we're a combination of an on ramp and an educational and like you said, content creators come to us because we're essentially a publishing house now. We're we're producing content because we care about Bitcoin so much that we think that that's that's the best thing thing we could be doing with our time is producing better Bitcoin content, better educational material, getting people onboarded. Well, what is the future for exchanges? Because we've had a couple of you know, quite big announcements in the last few months. Strike has moved to provide uh, Bitcoin buy-in at zero cost, essentially. It's close, almost almost zero cost, let's say. Uh, we've also had Jack Dorsey announced that they're going to be building a, or working on a decentralized exchange. Do, do, what's the, what do you think the long-term future is for exchanges? I think, obviously, some of the uh, uh, exchanges like my sponsor, which uh, Gemini, which allows people to buy all different types of coins and Coinbase, etc., they are um, they're in a different space because they you know they're supporting multiple coins and there isn't that kind of like ethical push to make this as cheap and easy as possible. But within Bitcoin, there is that kind of push, and I, I've noticed like the exchanges are expanding into other services. Like, what do you think the future is of exchanges? Uh, I mean, I think exchanges they're like they're kind of like casinos, right? They're basically. Uh, feeding people's base uh, desire to gamble, and that base desire is not going to go away. And as long as there's no sort of you know egregious regulation to stop it, and I'm not pushing for that regulation, by the way. I think people should be able to trade shitcoins if they like so. 
um, you know, like they can trade penny stocks, right? Or whatever. Um, you can trade go whatever you want. Yeah, go to Vegas, right? If you want to gamble, you can gamble. Um, I think those exchanges are um, they're firmly in the gambling camp for me. And I think that they started off as on-ramps, but because they turned into the gambling platforms that they are, um, they can't really serve the on-ramp case too well because they're really just trying to like get people in the door so they can do their thing, um, which is fine. Again, I'm not against that as a business model. It makes lots of money. Obviously, Coinbase is a very valuable company. But um, for me and for us at Swan, it's like an ethical mission to like, teach people about what Bitcoin is and turn them into Bitcoiners because we don't care. The gambling is going to happen. It, it, for me, it's like a, a total side note to the actual revolution of changing the money of the world. So I think the exchanges will exist in perpetuity. They will, just like you know, stock markets will exist in perpetuity and pink sheet stocks and penny stocks will continue to trade in perpetuity. It's not that those companies have any value or any fundamental reason for being. It's just that people want to trade them. So they'll continue trading them. Uh, Doge and meme coins will continue in perpetuity, right? These things will happen, but I think it also um, just means that the on-ramps you know, that are focused, because why do people come to us versus some other places? Because they like our education, they like that they can talk to somebody, they like that they can you know, have a, essentially a Bitcoin friend, where everybody's a Bitcoin friend. You know? like if you have one, you can talk to them, great, but a lot of people don't have a Bitcoin friend, so it's nice to be able to talk to somebody and ask them questions. And I think at the end of the day, in this phase of Bitcoin that we are in, which I think still lasts for the next 25 years where people are just learning about it, um, that's where on-ramps are going to really shine and exchanges will continue to make their money, but it's not that's not their future. Their future is really just to sort of be this gambling platform. Yeah, we are in a war of narratives in this. Uh, it's quite interesting you say about that. And it's something I've been discussing recently. I, I think I even discussed it with Udi, is that this war of narratives at the moment, uh, that Bitcoin isn't, for me, it's exciting, <laughs> but for most people, it isn't exciting. But uh, penguin NFTs are exciting. Yeah, Ethereum's exciting. Shitcoin ABC, Dogcoin's exciting. You know, Cumrocket's exciting Be because I think it feeds on that kind of uh, it feeds on that that desire, like that people have to gamble that that chance to get rich quick kind of situation. Yeah, adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. it's it's um, but it but it but. Dopamine, but it's but it is becomes like a war on narratives. Um, like I said to you when we started, my Twitter feed at the moment is just NFT this, NFT that, um, and and one of the difficulties with that is trying to trying to introduce people back to why Bitcoin is important, and I think a lot of people might miss it. And you know, people talk about flipping Bitcoin. I mean, I think that's quite difficult, but. It does feel like the people in Ethereum are trying to come up with monetary policy that allows that to happen, and I feel like sometimes we're in a war of narratives, and then it does then make me think about like how do we win this war of narratives? Because I think it is important that we maintain that Bitcoin is the best, but like how do we win that war of narratives? Do you think about that? Uh, I do a bit, but I also think we live in an echo chamber. You know, if you're on Twitter, how much of the world's population? Ten percent is on Twitter. I think ten percent of America is on Twitter. Um, I think it's much less worldwide. So it's really, really tiny, and you can get a false sense of what narratives are, and you can also get a false sense of what people's behavior is, right? Because you see all these crypto traders and NFT bros, but if you look at actual, I mean, you're on the ground in El Salvador, mm -hmm. I, I would be very curious for you to go around and ask people what they think about NFTs and see if anybody even knows what they are. Um, I mean, maybe there's some people, but my guess would be that most people going about their daily lives in most places aren't thinking about that. They're thinking about how they make ends meet and how to protect their wealth you know, from inflation. And at the end of the day, this is why I always talk about there's like luxury and there's necessity. And in America, 
Bitcoin and crypto in, in general. And again, I do not think those two things are the same at all, but they get lumped together by the media because in America, it's all luxury. All Bitcoin and crypto is luxury. It's, it's a luxury good. It's for people who have money to trade, blah, blah, blah. Sure, there's some people on the margin that are actually using Bitcoin for its quote unquote, you know, intended purposes like saving value. But most people are just trying to get rich because they're already decently well off and they just want to like maximize gains. And that, so you have yield chasing and all this other stuff. But look at other countries and it's very different picture, right? People are actually building businesses that, and they have to use Bitcoin to trade with their partners in some other country, for example, because that's the only thing that works. They're not out there trading NFTs. They're like trying to build a business. So um, I think we can get a very false sense of what the narratives are. And I really do think that the monetary forces around Bitcoin, they will they will work regardless of whether we try to you know defend these narratives or not. You know, people are going to have to make a choice: my currency that sucks and is devaluing, or Bitcoin, or shitcoin number nine hundred twenty-five. You know, that choice is a purely individual choice around what's the better money, uh, and Bitcoin is going to win that war very easily. So it's a bit of the hare and the tortoise race. I think it very much is because it's exactly like you're seeing. Um, you know, the ICO boom was another thing. If, 2016, when I started uh, sort of researching Bitcoin, I spent the first six or eight months of my journey researching Ethereum and ICOs because that's what was so hyped up. I was listening to like ICO podcasts and being like, wow, this is a really great idea. This, this is a great idea. Basic attention token, amazing. Like all this stuff was uh, really cool, right? And if you're a technology person, you end up really down that road very quickly because it sounds cool. It sounds like it's going to work, all this other stuff. And NFTs are just the current, you know, the ICO bubble. It's like, now it's all going to be, oh, we're going to have digital rights on the blockchain. We're going to do this. We're going to split artist payments. And a lot of those are great ideas. I'm not saying they're bad ideas. Just like basic attention token is not a bad idea, except for the token is the problem. The, the, the idea of paying for content and like not having ads is a good idea. But that should be done with lightning, with actual money, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with, with like uh these these NFTs and all this other stuff. It's like if you want to pay an artist for their podcast, well, you got Breeze, listen to the pod, send them some sats. Okay, that works. That's sending them money. If you're sending them garbage tokens that they then have to sell for money, that doesn't work. That's not a that's not a monetarily sound concept. So um, I think we're going to have these hype cycles, and then eventually it all just comes back. Like the hype cycles are the hair, and then Bitcoin's the tortoise actually building the infrastructure that needs to exist for these things to truly work in the real world, and then Lightning. You know, ends up implementing it. So I think we're going to see that. Love it, man. So what what else you got coming up, dude? Are you going to approach a second book, third book, fourth book? <laughs> I'm too busy with Swan, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I wish, but the, you know, the reason I wrote the the book is I, I think Bitcoin, you, like, it's very difficult to write books, for example, about Lightning because it's so rapidly evolving. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bitcoin, because it is a fixed protocol and because it's not going to really change, you can write a book about it, and the book's like good for life. You never have to really revise it. Because maybe historical. New historical stuff comes to light, um, but really the thing hasn't changed, right? Um, even though there's all these developments on second layers and third layers and all around it, side chains, all this kind of stuff, the Bitcoin doesn't change. So I would have a hard time writing another book because I think I would have to write it about Lightning or something like that, and um, it's just too early to to talk about that because it's not cemented yet. Uh, but um, yeah, spending a lot of time on Swan, just developing better services, better custodial and non-custodial options for people to take coins off and. Uh, IRAs are coming, and you know services for uh, high net worth individuals are expanding. So, doing all that kind of stuff. Well, listen, man, it's great to talk to you. Uh, I love what you guys are doing over at Swan. It's a great team. Uh, like Thanks. I say, you seem to have recruited everybody. <laughs> Where's my job? Where's my job? <laughs> That's offer? a, a Corey. 
I know. <laughs> Talk Corey. to Corey. Corey, Corey is a master man. He's just got everybody. <laughs> Corey, where's my job offer? No, I'm only kidding, dude. Like, listen, great to talk to you. Uh, finally, hopefully, <laughs> we'll get man. to hang out again soon. Um, but I appreciate your input and coming on and, and sharing with my audience, sure. man. Listen, if people want to find the book, which they should read, where can they find it? And where can they find you? Uh, you can Google uh, Inventing Bitcoin, uh, find it on Amazon. Um, it's also available in a number of different languages. We have a Spanish translation, a French, a German. Uh, somewhere in the works. We have Portuguese in the works. We have everything wow. in the works. Turkish is in the works. Um, so lots of translations coming. And you can find me on Twitter uh, at SKWP Scoop. Awesome, man. All right, listen, take care, Yan. Great to talk to you, brother. I'm going to head down to Zonte. Nice to talk to you, Peter. Appreciate it. All right, cheers. Okay, what do you think of that one? Mass adoption has never been closer. Now, for you guys listening, tomorrow is going to be a massive day as El Salvador makes Bitcoin legal tender. And I definitely have some reservations about it, especially spending some time over here. Like, I'm mostly pro. I think it's really positive. Getting Bitcoin in the hands of all the people of El Salvador could be a really positive thing. But look, there is nuance to this. But I am making a film about it. I'm looking to all sides of this debate because there are people who are against Bitcoin. There are people who are pro-Bitcoin. There are some people who are reserved. They just want to say, like... What is the deal? We need some more education about this. I'm covering everything in the film, so keep an eye out for that. Now, I think in the long term, what's happening with Bitcoin in El Salvador can be really empowering for the people here. But in the short, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. You know, as I said, I've been out here filming it. I'm trying so hard to tell a complete story, and it's a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of complications here. Look, I don't think Bitcoin fixes everything, but it's definitely a tool that can help people in El Salvador. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you haven't checked out Jan's book, we have a link in the show notes. And as ever, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, just jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That would be massively appreciated. Anyway, I hope you have a great week, and I will see you all on Wednesday. 